Welcome to this week's podcast from Faith Christian Church. For more details, check out faithcc.com.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Fantastic. Well, let's get into the Word today. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Next year, uh, not next year, oh my goodness. Next week, everyone say next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the legacy launch. We're going to be talking about the five-year plan of the church. We're going to be talking about what that means over the next 12 months and then what that means over five years. I want to encourage you to come expecting with great faith. Come on, who knows that God's got a great plan for this church? And, uh, you know, there's some great things that are happening in our church right now down in the southeast of Melbourne. Our Casey campus is exploding and what's happening in Monash and Chadston and what's happening in Limbrook. There's so many wonderful things of what God is doing. I just love the fact that in all of our different campuses, we may attend different meetings, but we are all one family. And that's what I love. There's such a great sense of unity uh, in our church at the moment, such a great sense of momentum of what God is doing. So I want to encourage you to come along for that. Uh, that is going to be amazing. We're going to be talking about what that means for us individually and how the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us about, you know, the church and where God has taken the church. You know, over the next five years, the church would have marked its 70th year anniversary. It's amazing, 70 years. So if you think about it, you know, seven is the number of completion. There's this sense in my heart that over the next five years, God is going to complete a platform ready for the next thing that God is going to do in our church. And so I want to encourage you to come along to that. That is going to be amazing. Uh, you know, also last week we had our one day. I don't know if you mentioned it, but we raised over $50,000 in one day. Was that already mentioned? No. Come on, you can get a bit more excited than that. 50 grand in one day, which is pretty awesome for our church. And so that's obviously all going out to missions. It's going all out just to the different corners of the globe. There's so many different, you know, ministries that we support. I think of the Groves in Africa, how they have been helping getting uh, street kids off the street. You know, one of the government ministers now recognizes that the streets are completely clean because all the kids are either in homes or they're in great care and they're actually getting an education. And uh, so, you know, it, I just think it's absolutely fantastic that we as a church have been a part of that, which is absolutely phenomenal. You know, so thank you for your generosity. Um, you know, if you haven't given, you can still give. We normally raise about 70 grand. I think a whole bunch more money is coming this week, so which is really absolutely wonderful. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. So um, I want to read to you first Luke out, out of Luke 11 verse 21. So I've been thinking about this idea, especially for next week. This is kind of the laying the foundation for what we're going to talk about next week. But, you know, this idea in Luke chapter 11, verse 21, I kind of believe it is foundational to our church. You know, we've got vision statements and we've got, you know, value systems and we've got all those types of things. But I reckon you could sum up what this church is about out of Luke chapter 11, and verse 21. I think sometimes we make life really complicated. I even think often in life we can make our Christianity really complicated and it's about this and it's about that. I think Luke chapter 11 verse 21 is kind of very powerful in kind of encapsulating what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is telling a story. He's telling a story about a rich guy and he comes to the end of the story and he almost makes this throwaway line. He makes this statement that we're going to build this message on today. And in the statement, it's a lesson. 
It's a lesson by saying, don't we become like this rich guy? And he makes this statement, this is how it will be, whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Let me say this, I believe the core value system of our church is to lead people into a place that they can be rich with God. Come on, who knows that today? That in all of our campuses, in all of our environments, in everything that we do, that it's not just about God blessing us and God looking after us, but there is a well of richness that God wants to bring into our lives so that we can handle what life throws at us. You know, becoming spiritually rich, rich in wisdom, rich in salvation. Come on, who knows that we are spiritually rich when we gave our lives to Jesus Christ? I think so many times in life as a child of God, you actually undervalue and actually just have a lack of faith in what you can actually achieve as a child of God, you know. I think so many times we get caught up in our past, we get caught up in the opinions of other people, and we allow those things to shape our expectation, not realizing that when you gave your life to Jesus, it wasn't just a psychological change, something shifted forever, and you became a child of God. Let me say that my kids get away with stuff that no one else can, because they are my kids, especially using my credit card. I'm surprised at the amount of subscriptions that come out of my credit card. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 5. Listen to this. Paul writes and he says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, there's a richness in God that you and I can have, not because of our own self-righteousness, but because of the grace of God upon our lives. Second Peter 1 verse uh, 10 to, to 11 says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to conform to your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you shall receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. You know, Luke chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus gives a couple of pictures here about worrying about life. And he, he's really starting this conversation by a question that someone is asking him. And it's almost like that he kind of slaps this guy on the side of the head and said, I'm not going to deal with that. But then he goes on and begins to have a discussion or tells them a parable. And out of that parable, we get this idea about the richness of God. And I want to have a look at that this morning, because I think there are some great keys in our own life. Luke chapter 12, verse 13 says, Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? He's talking about a principle here. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What you have prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat, what you, about your body, what you wear. Life is more than food, the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow nor reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more, it's funny, when I was in Sydney last year, I remember, you know, sitting there having a cup of coffee at the opera house, and there was a seagull just sitting there looking at me. And he was living there. And I thought, there you leave this little seagull who's got no money, but living in the most expensive real estate in Australia. That scripture came to life when I saw that little seagull. Okay, anyway. <laughs> Consider what the wild flowers, how they grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? So do not set your heart on what you eat or drink or do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So he's not saying you don't need them. He's saying your Father knows that you need them. But seek ye first. We have a different value system. Seek ye first these kingdom and these things will be given unto you as well. I want you to notice that Jesus is talking about two issues. He's talking about the rich guy who's got it all. He's talking about the person who's worried about just food and clothing and basically having the ability to pay their bills. And on one side, you've got a guy who doesn't have those worries. But on the other side, you've got someone who's really scraping it together. And Jesus is giving us two extremes of life, but he's saying the solution is one and the same. And it's not that Jesus is challenging the rich guy that he's done well. Praise God that, you know, people are being blessed in life so that they can be effective in the kingdom of God. He's not saying that that's a bad thing. But in his success, he has lost something. He has gained the whole world. But in that process, he has lost this dependence on God. And Jesus says the, direct, the, the same thing, but with a direct opposite scenario is don't you worry about what you eat. Don't you worry about what you were. If you're in a place that you're struggling, you need to trust God that God will take care of you. It's the challenge now of not having enough of what you produce. And it produces worry and anxiety and concern and fear. You know, it's funny, with all the technology and all of the stuff that we've got in this world, we have still never been able to conquer this whole idea of worry. We still are as more anxious as what we ever have been. We still get concerned. We still have sleepless nights. We still worry. There's still so much mental illness that's going around. Even though we are wealthy and things are going well and Western society is probably at its wealthiest that it has ever, ever been, it still can't address these basic issues of the human condition and of the health of the soul. And Jesus makes the point. He takes these two issues that are completely separate and he provides a solution for both. And the thing that Christ simply highlights is this, is that the farmer that has done well has secured himself without reference to God. Church, in other words, God is not in the picture. He said, I don't need God. I'm doing well without him. And the point is not that he's doing well, but the point is, is that he no longer sees God as part of the picture. And so he may be well off, but the true riches 
he has lost. You know what? It's the same with the anxiety of this world. Jesus says, don't be worried. Don't be scared. Don't get anxious about what you wear and what you eat. Why? Because what you're worrying about is silly? No. He talks about the Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. There are heaps of things that you and I often worry about, basic things, how to pay bills and you know, how to make sure that these relationships are going to work and how to bring peace into our home and when our kids come in after midnight, where are they and what's going on and all these things. And Jesus tells us to stop it. Why? Because again, you have not accurately placed God in the picture of your life. So you can be wealthy, you can have nothing. It's not about that. It's about where does God fit in your world? Have you placed him in your world? Have you placed him at the center of where your world actually is? Where does he fit? Where does he reside? Again, we try to secure our future by dealing with anxiety and fear in all these other ways without recognizing that the richness of our peace does not come from those things, but it comes from God Almighty himself. And I began to think about this idea. I began to think about our own lives and how often we build to house our future and the barns we are building to house our dreams and our plans. And the reason why I say this is because next week we're going to be talking about the things that we're building. We're going to be talking about housing the dreams and the purposes of God. But I'll be thinking about this for our own lives and how it's so important to get our center correctly. It, it, it reminds me of this story. I was having coffee with a a business guy just got back from China this week and uh, he climbed the Great Wall of China and he's telling me about all the wonderful, amazing things that are over there. And he talked about the terracotta warriors. So he began to tell me some of the history of it. And so I thought I'd share some of it today because it's interesting about the way, the lengths that people go to to build a security for their future. And, uh, you know, I found this on a TED Education video that's worth talking about. So I'm going to show you the video. And uh, I'm going to narrate the video as I show it. Hopefully, I can do it in line. So uh, are you ready? Here we go. No one's ready? Oh, pause it. There you go. Mm, okay. Well, hang on. Oh, well. Okay, here we go. 1974, farmers started digging a well in a small village, and they came across one of the most important finds in archaeological history. Vast underground chambers surrounding an emperor's tomb, they found 8,000 life-size clay soldiers ready for battle. Amazing. The story of this subterranean army begins with Ying Zheng, who came to the power of the Qing state in 246 BC. Now, he was ambitious and he was ruthless, and he would go on to become the emperor, who was the first emperor of China after uniting its seven warring kingdoms. His 36 reign, this guy was quite amazing, saw many historical accomplishments including a universal system for weights and measures and a single standardised writing script for all of China. A defence barrier that would later be known as the Great Wall of China all came about under this man's rule. Now, perhaps the emperor dedicated so much effort in securing his historical legacy because he was obsessed with his immortality. He spent the last years desperately employing alchemists and deploying exhibitions in search of the elixirs of life that would help him achieve immortality. And as early as the first year of his reign, he began the construction of a massive underground necropolis filled with monuments and artifacts and, and an army to accompany him into the next world and to continue his rule. This magnificent army is still standing in precise battle formation and is split 
across several pits. One contains a main force of 6,000 soldiers, each weighing about 100 kilos. The second chamber has 130 war chariots and over 600 horses. The third houses the high command, and an empty fourth pit suggests the grand project wasn't finished before the emperor's death. In addition, nearby chambers contain musicians and acrobats, workers and government officials, and various exotic animals, suggesting that Emperor Qing had more plans for the afterlife than just simply waging a war. And all of these figurines were sculpted from terracotta or baked earth. To construct them, multiple workshops, reportedly over 720,000 labourers, were commandeered by the emperor including groups of artisans that moulded each body part separate to construct statues as individual as the real warriors in the emperor's army. They stand according to rank and feature different weapons and uniforms, distinct hairstyles and expressions, even unique ears on every single one of those 6,000. Originally, each warrior was painted in distinct colours, but exposure to air caused the paint to dry and flake, exposing only the terracotta base. It is for this very reason that another chamber, only a few hundred metres away, has not been excavated. This is the actual tomb of the emperor, reported to contain palaces and precious stones and artefacts, even rivers of mercury flowing through mountains of bronze. But until a way can be found to expose it without damaging the treasures inside, the tomb remains sealed. You know, Emperor Qing was not alone in wanting company for his final destination. Ancient Egyptian tombs contain clay models representing the ideal afterlife. The death of Japan's Kufun period were buried with sculptures of horses and houses. The graves of Jonah Islands off the Mexican coast are full of ceramic figurines. And even though he was ruthless, the emperor chose to build soldiers and servants for this purpose than sacrificing loved ones that would accompany him. This has been practiced right throughout Egypt, West Africa, Anatolia, parts of North America, and even China in the previous dynasties. So many civilizations building for the afterlife. So many people wanting to secure their future and doing whatever they could in order to lock themselves in. Think about this principle in, in general when it comes to the things that we build, the houses that we build, the barns, the establishment the palaces, to house a dream, to house the purpose that you feel you need to do. And you know, when Jesus is talking about barns and not worrying what to wear, I just wonder whether he was referring to a mindset that we see here in the history of the world, people's desire to secure their future. You know, Emperor Jin Yang wasn't the only leader who desired to secure his future. You look at the story of Joseph and Pharaoh, it's going to be our text next week as we talk about this. And we know this story well is that Pharaoh has a crazy dream. And Joseph comes in and interprets the dream. And I like what it says in Genesis 41, verse 17 to 25. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, in my dream, I'm standing on the bank of the Nile. And when out of the river, there came seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows came up, scrawny, and very ugly and lean. I've never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean and ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows. I would like to have seen those cows. I mean, he's talking about the most ugliest cows. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they'd done so. They looked just as ugly as before. And then I woke up 
In my dream, I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh, I love this, are one and of the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. What a crazy dream, right? Seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven fat grains, head grains, seven skinny ones, right? What does Joseph do? I love this. He explains the dream to Pharaoh. Genesis 41 verse 25, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of the Pharaoh, one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are the seven good years. The seven good heads of grain are the seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And, no, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. But seven years of famine will follow. It's funny, I was talking to a business guy last night. He said when it comes to, he was, he's, he's involved in agriculture. He said, you've got to take the good with the bad. And this is really what Joseph is saying. There's going to be good seasons and there's going to be bad seasons, right? Then all, all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in the charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in cities for food. Notice now Joseph is building barns. We talk about the unwise man in the New Testament who's building barns. But now in the Old Testament, we see Joseph is doing it. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plans seem good to Pharaoh and all to his officials. So what does Joseph do? The way that he interprets the dream. He says, build silos, build big barns, prepare the country for famine that is coming. And this is what I love about this picture. For the seven years of famine, the whole nation is feeding off the dream of God. The whole nation is dream, feeding off God's dream. They're not feeding off man's plans. They're feeding off God's plans. You see, in the New Testament, we have this guy, guy that was feeding off his own plans, and sooner or later, that came to ruin. But then in the Old Testament, you see this wonderful picture of just a God dream that is being birthed in a godless king, and yet a man of God comes and begins to speak life into that dream. And we see because of that dream, that whole dream is feeding a nation of thousands of people for seven years and onwards. What does rich being towards God actually mean? When we say we are rich towards God, what does that mean? I think in life it basically means that you are feeding off Him. You are feeding off His dream. You are feeding off His purpose for your life. You are feeding off His strategy for your life. You may have your strategy, and we see in world history people that had wonderful strategies to try and secure their future 
all came null and void. But let me say this, when you feed of God's strategy and plan for your life, it will make you survive the famine. It will make you go through, when you go through difficult seasons, it will actually make you survive those storms. You won't get to the end and thought, why have I built these things? It has all been a waste of time. But they will be there to nourish you, to help you, to encourage you, and to be actually there to be a blessing into your life. You know, the Bible says this, that those who hunger and thirst will be filled. I do believe this. I think many Christians don't really have an accurate revelation of how rich they are towards God. I think you, you and I can become familiar with it. I think we can come, become familiar with the richness that God has brought into our world. And you know, one of the things that I never want to do as a church, I, church, listen, I never want to lose our hunger for the richness that God actually provides for us every single week that we don't become familiar with it, that we don't come, become familiar with the presence of God, that we don't become familiar with the peace and the grace and the love and the compassion that God gives us. I've got to tell you this, every time we have an altar call, if you have a need, you should be running down the front because once again, you are not relying on the richness of the pastors, but you are relying on the richness of the Holy Spirit. Let me say this, don't become familiar with altar calls. Don't become familiar with just coming into church and just saying, you know what, my riches of this earth are better than the riches of God. God says there is a richness in heaven that you can draw from, that you can receive, that will bring blessing and favor into your world. I was talking to a business guy just the other way, even having a conversation last night, talked about his own journey of faith and what, lo- what life was like before God and what life is like after God. And the thing that impressed me wasn't the words that was coming out of his mouth, but it was his disposition, that there was a thankfulness and a peace and a confidence and a complete life change that really affected all the other areas of his life. Like He had it all. But he recognized that when he found the richness of heaven and that became the center of his world, everything began to change for him. You know. And I think some of us in our Christian walk, we can just become familiar with those things. We can become familiar with what God wants to do. I gotta tell you, every single time I'm in the presence of God, church, I'm expecting for God to do something. Come on. I'm expecting for the Holy Spirit to move. I'm expecting for people to get saved. I'm expecting for people to get healed. I mean, I'm expecting for chains to be broken off people's lives. The amount of people that we pray for every Sunday, and then we see the testimonies after that, is absolutely amazing. Just things that are shifting in the right direction because God is rich in His mercy towards us. Come on, if you believe it this morning, say amen. You know, let's never confuse our Christianity with religion. Religion is dead. Religion is not rich. But our walk with the Holy Spirit is rich. David speaks about this. One of my favorite Psalms, David, 80, Psalm, David, there's no thing called David. Psalm 84, verse 10 to 12. If I can have the musicians come. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. I was talking to a guy who received some bad news about his health last year. And, you know, he was healed prior to that and things were going well and then it came back. The first thing he says to me, he says, is God angry with me? I said, that is a lie from the pit of hell. 
just, can I just say, just the messed up ways that we think about the goodness and the richness of God. Listen, not based on biblical values, but based on our own religious experience. Based on religion, based on denominational thinking, right, based on our background, not actually based on the Word of God. And he came from a very kind of very traditional environment where, you know, the, 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 the kind of the language was God is always angry with you. God always wants to hurt you. If you do something wrong, you're out of the will of God. God is abundant with His favour and blessing in our lives. Know the Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk as blameless. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. One of my favourite translators is a guy by the name of Robert Alter, and he's done a lot of translation in the Old Testament. He's a Hebrew scholar out of um, New York, and uh, he, you know, has his own translation of the book of Psalms, you know, with a commentary. It's wonderful. I get so much out of it. And uh, he writes this, he interprets, he writes this translation. Now remember, David is a wealthy man. David is a wealthy man. He says this, is it for better is one day in your courts than a thousand I have chosen. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand that I have chosen. In other words, he's saying better is one day when I'm operating in your will than a thousand of my own decision-making processes. Come on. Better is one day with your plan, your purpose, doing your will than a thousand where I'm just doing what I want to do and my agenda and building my barns and building my purpose and getting my thing going. Better is one day than a thousand anywhere else. Goes on to say, the Lord grants. He does not withhold bounty. He doesn't withhold to those whose walk is blameless. I'd rather have one day being at the centre of your will than a thousand at the centre of my own. The richness of heaven. Let me say this, church, as we are building stuff and starting campuses and doing youth program, getting you for life, it's under this one, under, one underlying foundation because there's a richness of heaven waiting for every person. And if we can help people find Jesus and have an encounter with Jesus right, and for them to experience the richness of God themselves, if you're a Christian in this place today, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you have surrendered your life to God, I'm telling you, there is a richness of heaven that you can draw from. There is a God does not withhold from you and I. There is a richness of peace. There is a richness of blessing. There is a richness of confidence. There is a richness of knowing and walking with God that just helps alleviate the stress, the anxiety, the worry. Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 12, talk about you know, God knows you need all those things. Seek you first the kingdom of God. Because you know what? Because that's where the real riches are. That's where the real riches are. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Faith Christian Church. To stay up to date, check us out at our website, faithcc.com.au.